This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. With me, I have Scott Horton. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm the guy from antiwar.com. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure most of my viewing audience uh, is already well aware of you and uh, well aware of what you have done. Um, but uh, I wanted to have you on because I wanted to discuss all things foreign policy because uh, you're quite the guy to, to get to do that. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to start out first. Um, I know Ukraine is big in the news, but I want to kind of shift to uh, a different conflict that I don't think is getting a lot of attention despite some interesting developments in uh, what's been going on, and that's Yemen. Um, recently, a truce... Uh, a ceasefire was signed between um, the Yemenis and Saudi Arabia, and I wanted to get your thoughts on that, just some preliminary thoughts on uh, what you think that means for the war going forward. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, first of all, you're right the second time. It's a ceasefire, not a, quite a truce, mm -hmm. but it's still the best news I've heard about anything in forever. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. This is the worst war going on in the world today by far. It's at least as bad as Iraq War II. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. And in fact, I'd be willing to bet you that when it's all over and they finally do account of the excess death rate that you're going to find is more than a million people died. Certainly high hundreds of thousands. Um, but it's been an absolute catastrophe now for seven years. And, um, you know, uh, as far as the New Deal that's being signed, you know, there have been ceasefires that come and go, and this one could come and go as well. However, um, I was just talking with Nasser Arabi, who's a Yemeni journalist that I know uh, from Sana'a. I was talking with him today, and he was saying that unlike any of the previous ceasefires, this one, you know, seems to be really thorough, has all these points stipulated to it, and it has all different uh, actors who have pledged to support it and have signed on the bottom line. So that means... First of all, Saudi Arabia and UAE, but it means also the people they support, like the Saudis have the so-called government, you know, that they've been trying to reinstall in power all this time, and also the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Islah, and then the UAE, I think also they kind of share Al-Islah with Saudi. They also back Al-Qaeda there. They're now called the Giants Brigade because that's there, also known as when they're fighting as the UAE's militia force on the ground there. Otherwise, you know them as the guys that try to blow up the coal and who did help to blow up the towers. Um, you know, I, I know people are sticklers for language. Help to arrange the hijackings 
<laughs> of September 11th is what I mean to say there. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, other things. So, um, uh, what's happened is, oh, and then the Southern, uh, separatists, the Southern transitional council is more of a socialist group that's dominant in the port town of Aden there. All of these groups have signed on to the ceasefire and the Houthis with them. And the Houthis, according to, uh, Nasser Arabi, he says, you know, they see all these guys saying they're willing to quit fighting. Then they say, fine, we'll quit too and see how long it lasts. Um, but they've already begun to lift the siege. So the blockade against uh, civilian and humanitarian, you know, whatever private supplies and humanitarian supplies coming into the ports, that is already being lifted. And they're working on Sanat Airport. He said it's not all the way open yet, but <clears throat> he seemed to buy the excuse that they're just not quite ready for the air traffic yet because they've been under this blockade all this time and they've got to kind of get adjusted there for technical reasons, I think he said. Um, but otherwise, they're working on reopening the Sinai airport. So, and then here's the other huge bullet point that goes with this, is that the Saudi and American sock puppet dictator, Mansoor Hadi, has now officially renounced his claim to the presidency. And they've appointed a council of eight to debate about what to do in his stead. Now, that, that eight doesn't include the Houthis, but that's essentially combines all those different factions into one faction for the Houthi, for the Houthis to negotiate with seemingly you know it could it could be anyway that it helps to make it easier for them to negotiate um, but the bottom line is after seven years of war the Saudis and UAE and al-Qaeda were no closer to their goal of forcing the Houthis out of the capital city of Sana'a and the Houthis really had had some setbacks they were trying to take the town of Marib which is dominated by al-Islah is east of Sana'a there, they were unable to do so. They were forced back by the Saudi and UAE-backed, uh, you know, so-called government forces and allied with al-Islah there and the rest. So um, pretty much a good place for them to stop. It's not that they're in a position of total weakness, but they're not at the peak of their strength. They are like on the downside of their strength there. At the same time, they continue to be able to hit targets inside Saudi Arabia and UAE, including recently... Uh, hitting an oil refinery uh, near Jeddah. And as Nasser and Daniel Arison agree, that that seems to have been what changed the calculus in Riyadh. That, look, these guys, no matter what we do, it's getting easier and easier for them to reach out and touch us on the Saudi side of the line here. We need to just stop this now. And so it's certainly not definite, but it's a very hopeful sign just because, again, so many incentives are lining up for the different factions to just want to quit as as of now you know it's everybody's sick and tired of the death so i wanted to ask you too what you thought this meant for u.s foreign policy as well because um i think not many people know about how involved the u.s has been in this particular war but as well just in the general middle east and that I think the trend has been going that the U.S. has taken major blows to their influence in the Middle East within the past few years, um, particularly with the withdrawal from with Afghanistan and now here with Yemen, them reaching at least a ceasefire. I wanted to get your thoughts on what that meant 
for the U.S.'s influence uh, within the region and whether or not you think this is a, a kind of a change in foreign policy or a shifting focus of the foreign policy? Um, yeah, I mean, that part certainly is right. You know, it's not that uh, Biden has adopted non-interventionism, but I think he has wanted to de-emphasize the war on terrorism and focus just as uh, Trump's National Security Council before him on what they call great power conflict with Russia and China. That's where the money is. That's where the prestige is. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was just too soon to pick a fight and restart the Cold War for just no damn reason at all. You know, it's taken them this long to construct a scenario where we're the supposed defenders in the thing and and uh, have aggressors to contain. Um, but, you know, otherwise it's all in the game, you know, as I think you and all your viewers know. Um, all of government is essentially, uh, as the military calls it, a self-licking ice cream cone. Mm. I mean, they create their own problems that they have to solve. And just because job one is not having to get a job, you know, so that's basically what they're doing, you know, uh, same as everything. Um, so, um, you know, that's a big part of it. As far as, you know, American influence in the region, I don't think there's really any question that the high watermark of American power in the Middle East was right, at, you know, this day, 19 years ago, in 2003. And they took Baghdad, you know, the statue came down on the 12th, today's the 15th, right? It was already downhill. Now we got the capital city, now what? Well, we're gonna shoot ourselves in the foot and then the stomach and then 30,000 of our guys are going to shoot themselves in the head. We're going to have, and that's quite literal, um, and we're going to have, um, you know, this catastrophic war that we fight on behalf of our regional, I say our very loosely here, you understand the American empire side of the story we're talking about. Um, they gave the capital city to the very closest friends of their regional nemesis, Iran and the Shiite alliance. And so ever since then, they've just been scrambling, try to make, trying to make up for that fact. So that's why they backed the al-Qaeda terrorists in Syria. It wasn't because Obama was secretly loyal to the terrorists because he's a Muslim born in Kenya and all that stuff. It was that he was W. Bush. And, you know, the change should really come under W. Bush. Bush was the one who put the Shiites in power in Baghdad, but he was also the one to be read the riot act by his own staff and told that, hey, uh, we really screwed this up. We have to do something about it and at the Saudis and Israelis' insistence as well. And that was why they turned on Bashar al-Assad, was essentially, if they can, if they gave Baghdad to Tehran, well, at least they can take Damascus away from them. Because in Damascus, you know, the capital of Syria there, the Alawites are very close to the Shiites and are closely allied with Iran, and were in fact at that time the only Arab state allied with Iran, unless you count, you know, the mini-state of Hezbollah in southern Lebanon there. Um, or, you know, Hamas in Gaza, but those aren't states. Um, so, uh, you know, this was, it was very important to take Assad away from them. And that was why Obama pursued the policy of the dirty war, even backing the bin Ladenites, the guys who had been the worst of the insurgency, the Sunni-based insurgency against us in Iraq War II, became the moderate rebels in the war in Syria, which then, of course, as everyone remembers, led directly to the rise of the caliphate, which then conquered Western Iraq, and then Iraq War III, where Obama had to go in and destroy the caliphate that he had built to spite the Shiites that he wished 
that Bush hadn't built up in the first place in Iraq War II. And then, of course, what did that mean? That means America was taking the side of Iran and their friends in Iraq again in order to destroy the Islamic, the Islamo-fascist so-called caliphate that they had created. Well, it's the same reason they're fighting a genocide, a treasonous, pro-Al-Qaeda war of genocide against the people of Yemen for these last seven years now is because the Houthis are friends with Iran. And after Bush gave them Baghdad, dang it, we can't let them take advantage any other place. And here their friends have taken the capital city. Mind you, President Obama admitted himself on video, and I need to check this footnote. I keep saying that and I keep forgetting. Uh, I'm 99% sure this was in his video interview with Thomas Friedman in his last year in office there. Uh, we, I might have to go back and check that. But he definitely said it on video. You could see the man's lips moving as he admits that actually Iran warned the Houthis not to take the capital city at the end of 2014. You're going to freak out the Saudis. They're going to launch a war against you, the Ayatollah said. Don't do it. Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force, right? Don't make this terrible mistake and take the capital city, Houthis. Then once the Houthis do it, we got to launch a war against them in the name of Iran is taking over. Self-refuting basis for the war right there. And of course, Iran didn't knock our towers down. That wasn't Hezbollah guys that did that. You know, that was the other side of this conflict that did that. And so, you know, it's not quite right to say no one in Yemen ever did anything to us. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula did, right? They, um, they uh, killed a couple of our uh, trainers in 1995, training the National Guard. They killed 19 of our airmen at Kobar Towers in 1996. They killed 17 of our sailors in the coal attack of 2000. They helped to coordinate the September 11th attack that killed 3,000. They uh, did the um, underpants bombing. That was the attempt to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009. They did the Charlie Hebdo attack in France. And I think it was either the Eagles of Death Metal or it was the Nice truck attack. One of the others of those was also uh, AQAP involved in that. These are not, you know, Al-Qaeda linked something. These are real ass Al-Qaeda guys that have been at war against the United States of America for more than 25 years. And our government, they don't care. They hate the Shiites more. I don't know what to tell you, pal. They hate the Shiites more, and here we are. Again, fighting a war of treason on behalf of Al-Qaeda, on behalf of the guys that bombed the coal. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly correct in your analysis of that um, and of the situation there. And I think um, that really the U.S. is... is figured out that uh, the situation that they had going in the Middle East has become unsustainable and uh, we're seeing the decay of the U.S. global empire in, you know, in the Middle East and its influence there. And you talked a lot about the shift in focus, that it is really a shift in focus, not a, a policy of non-interventionism as some call it, um, but a shift in focus to Russia and China and I wanted to get your thoughts on how you think that is happening and if that is in response to what a lot of people in, in the international relations community is calling like a destruction of the unipolar international system that we had um, post the collapse of the Soviet Union yeah well I mean we couldn't have had a more ham-handed foreign policy right 
Like if you were in charge of the empire and you accepted the precepts of the empire. Well, and look, I mean, it always was a contradictory thing. What can I tell you? You know, on one hand, they go, look, you're going to tolerate this because it's simply for your own good. And who could argue with that? All we're doing is keeping the sea lanes open and free from pirates. All we're doing is maintaining, uh, remember, Pax Romana or Pax Americana. That means peace. In other words, our federal government keeps the peace between the 50 states. Why not try it throughout the world? And so, look, we spread, you know, the European Union is really the American slash European economic union. And, of course, without a, a single European army, it's NATO is the European army dominated by the United States. And then the same thing going on in uh, East Asia. Much of Latin America and Africa are just ignored because it doesn't really matter who's providing their security one way or the other other than specific missions to obtain minerals and this kind of thing. But in terms of like overall arching, you know, security architecture or whatever, like they call it, you have the African Union and all that, but most of that just kind of runs by itself. Um, those wars stay, tend to stay, you know, small and isolated to smaller, you know, regions of the continent, that kind of thing. But for the rest of the planet, you know, the, the public relations at least, and I think internally among party members as well, if we're doing Orwell here, you know, um, the idea is we're spreading peace and stability and security and the rules-based liberal international order. And all we ever wanted was for the whole world to adopt democracy and independent judiciaries and free market capitalism and like this. But of course, the problem here is that we're not talking about Harry Brown and Ron Paul spreading true free market libertarianism to the world by, you know, selling it to them voluntarily on the market. Instead, we're talking about like, you know, bastard son, you know, uh, uh, funhouse mirror version of libertarianism, otherwise known as neoliberalism, which is, you know, otherwise known as our mixed economy, our quasi free market as we have it in America now. And that's why, you know, somebody like Bill Clinton can say or all in all earnesty that, you know, all we're trying to do is we're trying to spread free markets and democracy to the world. It's just that he doesn't mean free markets like you and I mean free markets, and he doesn't mean self-government like you and I mean self-government, right? Um, essentially, by the time it's all implemented, you can forget almost all of the high-minded talk about principle and law and stability, and it turns out it's almost just a pure naked neo-neo imperialism where you do what we say and we steal your resources and steal your money and uh, you know, force your army to serve our army in our imperial wars and all these crazy things. And they break the rules all the time. You know, when they, when they're expanding NATO in Eastern Europe in the 1990s, the whole time they're saying, this is not directed against Russia. Hell, it's not even really a military alliance at this point because we have no enemies. It's, uh, you know, it's like in name it's an alliance, but really it's one big cocktail party where a bunch of hoity-toity types get to all hang out together at night and it's fine. And you know, it's really no threat. Um, we're, we're just kind of spreading the peace and the, the Russians won't mind. They won't react because it's not really against them at all. Um, uh, and yet at the same time, they start bombing Serbia to break off Kosovo. Now, when they attacked Iraq, it had invaded in Iraq War One. They had violated the UN Charter and invaded across a sovereign nation state's line and conquered Kuwait 
And the UN Security Council passed a resolution saying we're going to undo this. I'm not saying that's justified or I really support the, the um, you know, post-war order at all in that sense. But that's the law anyways. You can't start a war unless you have a UN Security Council resolution saying you can start a war. Otherwise, it's a crime. Um, and so here in Serbia, Kosovo, there's no international border being crossed. It's just a civil war. And in fact, we know that the claim that 100,000 Kosovar Albanian civilians have already been exterminated and more soon was a lie, a damn lie. So here they're interviewing, uh, intervening in a civil war where they have absolutely no jurisdiction whatsoever based on a false causes belly against Russia's closest allies in the region, the Serbs, and without a UN resolution, just based on NATO the very thing that they're promising is just a big cocktail party is actually now launching a war. And as they put it at the time, there was the slogan, out of area or out of business. And think about what that means. We have to find a war to fight or else we'll have to get real jobs. That's all they're saying, out of area or out of business. So they're telling the Russians, don't worry. And then they launch an aggressive war right there in the heart of Europe against Russia's closest friends. And, and and then look, George Bush, and they said at the time in the peace treaty, the end of the war, don't worry, we promise never to recognize the independence of Kosovo. Ha, huh, yeah, right. Of course, George W. Bush did exactly that in 2008. Um, they break any deal they want. They broke the promise to expand NATO East. They broke the promise that, okay, but we're not gonna put our military equipment in the new NATO nations. Well, they went right ahead and did that too, in violation of their 1997 promise. Um, you know, you look at the Middle East where Donald Trump says, I, I guess the king of the universe or something uh, based on no inherent authority that he has whatsoever. I hereby declare the Golan Heights belong to Israel, even though no, they don't. That's all stolen property belongs, first of all, to the, the Druze that live there. And second of all, to the nation state of Syria, not Israel. It's stolen land. The whole thing's illegal. And then they turn right around and they they recognize Morocco's invasion of northern Western Sahara. Now that's not just a region, that's a nation state, Western Sahara. Well, Morocco stole the northern half of it because there's a bunch of minerals they want and things like that. Well, Donald Trump says, hey, as long as you'll get along with Israel, you can have northern Western Sahara. Now, does that sound like the liberal rules-based international order to you? When America can overthrow any government they want, we've done just in the last 20 years, a dozen coup d'etats and almost, you know, almost exclusively focused on overthrowing any friend of Russia that they have left anywhere in the world, whether, you know, in Georgia, two attempts in Belarus, Tajikistan, uh, two successes in Ukraine. Um, they went after Lebanon and after, uh, of course, Georgia and Serbia uh, back at the dawn of this thing. And, and more than that, it goes on. Um, they just tried to do Belarus again about a year and a half ago. And, you know, I talked to this security expert uh, from the uh, Naval War College, a guy named Lyle Goldstein, and who really knows all about this stuff, is really an expert on it. And I said to him, hey, listen, you know, Putin could have taken the Donbass back in 2014, 2015. The wars raged this whole time. We never made them implement Minsk to the peace deal this whole time. So what's, why did he wait and what changed now? Why did he go ahead now? Well, I already knew why he didn't then. Never mind why he waited, but why did he go ahead and change his mind? And Lyle Goldstein told me, he says, I'm virtually certain it was the attempted coup in Belarus a year and a half ago 
that it wasn't just Putin, it was the entire national security state in Moscow said, that's it, enough. The Americans just absolutely relentless and we have to draw the line here. We're not letting them have Belarus and it's time to draw the line in Ukraine and kick their asses back out of Ukraine. Everybody, if you're not familiar, go ahead and pull up a map and look at where Belarus is, okay? If you're the Russians, the exact words out of your mouth too would be, you Yankees can't have it. You just can't. And if you're willing to push it, then we're willing to push back. That's where we're at here. We're already, you know, the Democrats and, and the Republicans too, just absolutely pushing our luck beyond any reason in Ukraine. But now you're going for Belarus. I mean, this is like going after a state in the union. They're not exactly a member of the Russian Federation, but de facto and close to damn enough anyway. You know, this would be like if we were fighting a war on the northern side of the Caucasus Mountains. Buddy, you are too far from home and you need to turn around and get the hell out of here. This is not right what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I agree entirely with uh, what you have to say about that situation. And, and I'm glad you brought it up and getting more into the Ukraine conflict because I wanted to ask about that because a lot of people have made the observation that, you know, the U.S. has been rather um, hesitant to get involved and, and directly intervene, though we can talk about all the arms that have been funneled into Ukraine and uh, foreign volunteers moving into Ukraine. But it, it seems to many people that we have done far more for far less. And some people say that they think that that is because we're seeing a decline of the global American empire. It, it's in the decline stage. It's not able to hold itself up anymore. And it, it wouldn't be able to sustain a war with Russia um, regardless of whether or not nuclear uh, nukes got involved in such a war. And I wanted to ask you what you thought of that. If you thought the global American empire is kind of declining now and, and it's unable to do what it could do you know, just a few decades ago, even last the last decade. Look, I don't think we've ever really had a capability to defeat Russia on Russia's own border there. Mm. You know, the idea was we can stop them from pouring into West Germany, right? Now we've moved the line 1,200 miles to the east. Now we're supposed to what? Field an army up through the Bosporus Straits and into the Black Sea? and into Ukraine, and we're gonna field how many Army and Marine Corps divisions into Ukraine that way? Or we're gonna, you know, um, pull into the Baltic and dump them all into Germany, and then we're gonna railroad them across Germany and Poland, and we're gonna field how many divisions of men to fight a land war, tank war, on the ground in Ukraine, or in Belarus, or in the Baltic states or something. Essentially, you know, our our military forces absolutely outmatch the Russians. But we're talking about right there on their border here, you know? Um, so that really changes the calculus. If somehow you could magically take nukes out of the equation, just let the generals have the biggest tank battle that they can have or whatever it is, possibly if we built up forces enough first, and bring in enough conventional air power with enough, you know, special ops guys on the ground with laser designators, maybe we could take them. But sure seems like a hell of a road to hoe right there 
on their border or, you know, inside Russia, you know, God forbid, something like that. So, you know, I think that's the thing of it is that, um, you know, we never should have been seeking that kind of power, right? Who, who wants the ability to challenge Russia right on their own border this way? That's us causing trouble where we don't really need to. And, you know, people say, yeah, but what about all the countries of Eastern Europe who don't want to be dominated by the Russians? The answer to that, very frankly, is tough. That's exactly what Ike Eisenhower told the Hungarians in 1958. And that's what LBJ told the Czechs in uh, the Czechoslovaks in uh, 1968. And that's what Ronald Reagan told the Poles in 1982, 1980 and, you know, through 82. I'm like, sorry, we're not coming for you. We're just not. You're stuck behind the line. It's just too far. It's not our vital interest. We're not going to nuclear war for some liberals in Prague. We're just not going to do it. And, and yes, we are going to sit back and watch the Soviets crush them. And we're going to say, that, see how horrible the Soviets are? Which is absolutely true. Um, but no, we're not going to go to war over that. The threat in the old days was you better stay the hell out of West Germany. And you better not come any further than that. Right? But now we're talking three nations east of there. Um, right on their border. And, you know, people talk about having a no-fly zone there. Well, that would mean, look, in the case of Iraq, that was where that comes from, a no-fly zone over southern and northern Iraq after Bush Sr. encouraged the Shia and Kurdish uprising and then stabbed them in the back and let Hussein, uh, Saddam Hussein kill them all. And they said, oh, well, here, we'll have to launch this no-fly zone. Yeah, but they only got four jets left anyway. We're just bombing them on the tarmac. There's, no fly, there's not a no-fly zone to enforce there. You know what I mean? Bush let them keep their helicopters to put down the insurrection. They launched a no-fly zone after that. The whole thing was essentially just a farce. It was just an excuse to bomb Iraq for 10 years. Um, ask Bill Clinton and help get our towers knocked down. Um, he'll tell you all about it. Um, in fact, Robert Kagan admitted that in Foreign Affairs just the other day. Yeah, it was a marathon. Yeah, you don't say Victoria Newland's husband there, huh? Um, you know, um, but that's where that comes from the no-fly zones. And then they say they want to have one over Ukraine. What does that mean? That means American Air Force and over Ukraine. And it means also zapping their anti-aircraft on the ground in Ukraine, in Belarus, and inside Russia. Because, again, we're not talking about a proxy war with them in Vietnam a million miles away. We're talking about right on their border. So you would have anti-aircraft missiles inside Russia being fired at American jets, which means American jets would be firing at anti-aircraft positions inside Russia, meaning the end of the world. And we all die and our cities go up in thermonuclear explosions if we're lucky because nobody wants to survive the first salvo anyway, right? Like what the hell are you gonna do if they nuke every base in America but leave the cities? We'll all wish we were dead, you know? It'd be the end of the world anyway, just slower, you know? Um, and that's the kind of danger that they're missing with. And see, here's the thing, man. I try not to be too alarmist about this stuff. I've been warning against our Russia policy for a very long time. I'm not the kind of person who says there are A-bombs coming over the poles any minute now. I don't really believe that. And I don't like getting out over my skis, warning about things in a hyperbolic way and this and that. But the problem is here is the Americans in charge now are so poor at this. They're just doing, you know, what it really is is they cannot admit the truth. 
their own role in provoking this fight. They just can't say, okay, well, look, off the clock, 8.30 at night, having a drink of brandy with the lights off in the shadows, like, hey, Tony, I mean, we probably shouldn't have overthrown the government in Kiev in 2014, right? That kind of led to this. Maybe we shouldn't have done that, right? They're not doing that. They're not saying, look, guys, this is partially our fault. The real context is this and that. And so maybe we need to be a little less firm in our position here and figure out a way to negotiate in good faith or whatever. They're not doing that. They're living in totally, total unreality. The same line of BS they're shoveling at you on TV is the same thing that they're telling each other. That what happened here was Putin became evil. And then you know what evil men do? Bad things. And so here we are. And that seems to me to be the level of, you know, discussion and reality inside the halls of power right now. Nobody can admit the truth of this. You know, you have to go to John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago, and they've already, you know, almost completely unpersoned him anyway. You know, like he's the most official guy in the world they should have to listen to about this, but they just won't. You know, I mentioned Robert Kagan admitted that American Middle Eastern policy brought on a September 11th attack. He wrote that in Foreign Affairs the other day. He also admitted that what Russia's doing now is a direct reaction to American policies in Eastern Europe. You know, you talk about whether America's coming home or not now, whether this is our empire waning now. Well, let us pray. We're not supposed to be an empire in the first place. All these guys, if you're telling me that, hey, is it true that W. Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden completely blew our wad and we got nothing left and our true national debt is still, even if you forget the Social Security IOUs and whatever, it's still, you know, bookkeeping stuff. It's still $20 trillion, right? It's still a total catastrophe and massive price inflation and, and all the centralization of police powers in the country. We now have an FBI and a CIA who think nothing of attempting to rig and succeeding in rigging two presidential elections in a row as they intervene in the case of Russiagate and the Hunter's laptop and the fake Michigan kidnapping plot and all that in 2020. Um, the Patriot Act, NSA, the CIA Vault 7 leak shows CIA is spying on us all Americans just as bad as the NSA and the FBI are. Um, you know, all this stuff comes with our state of permanent war. And again, they say all they look, all we are is the constitutional republic and a little d democracy and look at our great bill of rights and all we're trying to do is keep the peace in the world. And yet look at them, they're blood soaked, completely corrupt, evil empire, violating every aspect of our constitutional republican form, violating the letter of our constitutional law and our bill of rights and every bit of that every day in the name of the emergency that they themselves have created. So, you know, the hawks say, oh no, it's the Thudicides trap that you know, once one empire is waning and another is rising, they have to go to war. Well, screw that. We don't have to go to war with anybody. This is the new world. We could just come home and forget about it. Nobody's coming here ever. And if you're telling me that the French and the Germans and the Russians and the Chinese and the Japanese are gonna have to figure out some kind of common security architecture to keep each other from blowing their brains out, good luck to them. But we don't have to be involved in that. And we suck at that. I mean, again, the conflict of interest here between creating this selfless rules-based world order and maintaining the American power to enforce it all. Well, we need a regime change in Moscow and Beijing, don't we? And yet that's not in the cards. And if they were to really push it and try it, it would lead to war. So we just can't. So 
you know, Charles Krauthammer called it the unipolar moment. At the end of the Cold War, America is the super duper power. Number one, USA, no near peer competitor for a little while. And we can try to set the world up the way we want our new world order to be, but that's only gonna last so long. One, because of course they're spending us into punery in the name of enforcing this stupid thing, but also because after all, reunified Germany is gonna start producing things and making money. Um, you know, uh, Japan and China and India and the other powers of Europe and Asia, they're gonna start producing things and getting richer. And so at some point, their power is going to be more equal to ours. And then at that point, we will have to give them some kind of decent respect and a share in the decision-making in the world. You know, you hear all this hype from the right wing now about how China is trying to take over the world. China's not trying to take over the world. They're trying to take over China. You know, they're trying to dominate their own area and some of their immediate neighbors. But I will hasten to remind you. Well, first of all, again, the entire precept here is not, oh yeah, when our unipolar world ends, then it will be replaced by a unipolar world dominated by somebody else. Nobody really thinks that. Like only right-wing talk radio listeners believe that. But nobody at any think tank really thinks that that's what's happening. What's happening is China is rising to become a near peer in a multipolar world. Nobody thinks they're gonna dominate us or dominate all of Eurasia. They couldn't. And just frankly, look at a map or spin a globe and look, China is already a massive overextended empire. You know, half of that landmass is kind of desert anyway. They got a billion people, you know, living on their East Coast, basically, you know, a little bit further inland from that. Um, but they have restive populations in, obviously Taiwan is a major outstanding issue, but they there's also uh, Tibet and Hong Kong and the Xinjiang province. I mean, Hong Kong's not an ethnic thing, but in Tibet and Xinjiang it is. And Hong Kong is of course this like semi-separatist, uh, you know, wish they could be uh, independent province there under, you know, resentful uh, domination by Beijing. Um, but then they're also surrounded by, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you got to cross the sea, but just right there is Japan. And then there's Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and Thailand and Bhutan and Myanmar and Nepal and India. They have major rivalry with India and border disputes in the Himalayas and all those things. And they border on Pakistan, Afghanistan, Russia, Mongolia. Oh, I left out Tajikistan, I think. Is it Tajikistan? Where am I at? Uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Russia, Mongolia, Russia again, right? They have to have a foreign policy for all of these. Well, not two for Russia, but you understand what I mean. Um, so we have Canada and Mexico and water for our neighbors. You know, China is plenty hemmed in uh, and, and certainly is no threat to the world. In fact, did you see the remake of Red Dawn that they did a couple years ago? So there's two funny points to me here one of them is in this story is a display of of chinese power because the movie was supposed to be about china taking over america instead of russia this time but the chinese objected why because they're such capitalists and have so much money that they were going to sink the film project and not run it in china 
if they didn't change it from China to North Korea. So there's China flexing their muscle and their power such as it is. But then, so you change it to North Korea. But let's just pretend and change it back. If anyone remembers this movie and the intro to this movie, just change it back to China because it's the same damn difference as far as how absurd it is. But, you know, in the way they did it, North Korea ends up taking over South Korea. And then they use that economic power to take over all of China. And then they use all those nukes to take over Japan. And then, like, I forgot if they go uh, west and end up, you know, subsuming all of Eurasia before they go to Australia and then come across and, and then dominate all of Siberia, all in, all of Eastern Russia. And then they come across the Bering Strait and the billion Chinamen just come pouring across the Bering Strait like ants, I guess. Um, and then come to dominate all of North America. And the thing of it is, like when you watch, see what they did, what they had to do was they did like at the intro of the movie and the opening credits, they did like a news montage of all this stuff happening. And it's just the most absurd damn thing in the world. If it had been a cartoon, it wouldn't have been any less credible. And the whole thing is just completely preposterous. And again, if you put China back in the role of the bad guy here instead of North Korea, it would have been no less preposterous that they're coming here. They're just not coming here. Um, and just look at the size of the Pacific Ocean, how far they'd have to go without getting sunk on the way, on their way to, you know, invade North America somehow. You know, the whole thing is just a hoax. Um, the Chinese dictatorship, it is a communist party in a very capitalist country. Uh, well, a very mixed economy like ours, I guess you could say. Um, it, but it is a one-party dictatorship, and it absolutely is a threat to the people under its jurisdiction. I do not buy these theories that they are attempting to enlarge that jurisdiction in a serious way, other than possibly the invasion of Taiwan, which I do think is, you know, probably not a likelihood, but certainly is a possibility. But remember, Taiwan's not really a foreign country. And in fact, it's been American policy for 50 years, a very successful peacekeeping policy, by the way, for 50 years, half a century now, that there is one China and that Beijing is the capital of all of it, including all of Taiwan and the city of Taipei. And yet we would like to see them re reunified by peaceful means someday instead of by aggressive ones and all of that. So in other words, if China did go, you know, worst case scenario and reabsorb Taiwan by force, that still doesn't mean that they're headed to Thailand next. It still doesn't mean they're headed to Japan next or God forbid the United States of America or anything like that. We're still talking about part of China. Um, it'd be like if America lost Florida and then vowed to one day get it back. Like, and then they do get it back. Doesn't mean they're going to Iraq next. They might, but uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Yeah, I, I think you touched on a lot, uh, a lot of areas I wanted to touch on too. Um, and I want to go into a depth into two specific areas, but briefly I want to go back to um, the Ukraine conflict because sure. it's been very difficult to really ascertain what exactly is happening in the day-to-day -day in um, Russia with Russia's invasion of Ukraine because we're inundated with information from both Russia's side and Ukraine's side that uh, often is either proven demonstrably false or not the full picture or whatever and this happens in every conflict and but from what can best be ascertained it seems like the Ukra Ukraine has put on uh, a good enough defense in which Russia is now you know moving back on a lot of the claims they made early on 
in the conflict. And so now I want to kind of entertain an idea where we don't get directly involved in Ukraine, but Ukraine wins this conflict. Let's say Russia moves out of um, Donbass completely, um, maybe even Crimea, and it's a, it's a total Ukrainian victory. What do you think that will mean for the U.S.'s influence, not only there in the region, um, but just the global American empire in general and our foreign policy moving forward? What, what do you think is ha would happen in that scenario as it looks like the most likely scenario, just a Ukrainian victory, not necessarily them taking back Crimea or even Donbass, but just Ukraine wins this conflict? Well, I mean... I, I mean, I, first of all, I don't think that there's the slightest chance in the world Ukraine is going to force the Russians out of Crimea or the Donbass. Okay. I think that is a fait accompli. I mean, hell, they took Crimea back in 2014, 2015, and there ain't nothing in the world the Ukrainians could do about that now. And I think that's really been true for most of the Donbass since 2014, 2015, where it is the locals there, but they're being backed up by Russian special operations forces. Um, I think both those ships have all the way sailed um but like just hypothetically if the ukrainians get you know a secret weapon and figure out a thing or something uh joe biden hands them a couple of h-bombs and they use them i guess uh, then um you know if the russians lose that bad then i guess i would expect them to do something stupid and horrible somewhere else i think i i, I fear the same thing to the americans you know if the russians win um too much of what they want here that then the Americans politically got to figure out something else stupid to do to try to make up for it, that kind of thing. I think, you know, honestly, the narrative that the Russians have, you know, just been getting their asses handed to them and all of that, I think is largely overblown. You know, it's true that Putin said in his original declaration of war, he essentially defined the entire nation as an outlaw nation and set, pardon me, you know, his parameters broad enough to justify taking over the whole country. And yet he hasn't really tried to do that this whole time. And, you know, it, you know, the question, even from the beginning really was, is he gonna take the whole East or just the Donbass? In fact, I just saw a clip from my Utah speech, which I gave still at the end of February, I think it was February 28th or something, or maybe it was like March 2nd or something like that. It's just at the very beginning of the war where I said, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but there's already some indications they're going to end up pulling back to the Donbass and that they don't even mean to take the entire East. So that much was obviously like on the table as a possibility from the very beginning of the war. That you know, the question was, are they going to take Kiev or not? Are they going to force an, a regime change in the capital or are they willing to settle for something less? And, um, you know, I I agree with you entirely about the part about the day-to-day -day battlefield reports coming out of there, I pretty much dismiss all of it. Like I'm willing to accept more or less the battlefield map as agreed upon by most of the major experts within you know, some margin of error there. But as far as like who is shooting who in this picture, like I don't know, and I don't know when it was taken or where it really came from or whatever. I'm very non-committal about all those kinds of things. Um, I'm not that impressed by the arguments that the Russians have just been completely destroyed and beaten back and that's why they're retreating back to the Donbass it seemed to me that they were dividing Ukrainian forces so they could create that so-called land bridge from Russia to Crimea you know 
The Donbass region has been semi-independent since the Civil War broke out in 2014, but not all of it. If you look at the map of what is technically the Donbass and the area controlled by the separatists, it's like half again as big or, or more, right? So um, one of the things that I think this fits within the borders of the greater Donbass, as you could call it maybe, was extending uh, the size of it westward enough to include the northern gates to Crimea. And a big part of that is that there's no fresh water on Crimea and they have to guarantee fresh water resources there. And they wanted to be able to guarantee not just the bridge that they had built, but a so-called land bridge of direct access to the Crimean Peninsula from the Donbass. Now, then the question is, are they going to really try to take Odessa? I think probably not. Um, it looks like they're going to try to expand the borders of Donbass, I mean, to their actual borders, and declare independence for them. And then, you know, we can all hope that Putin at that point will declare victory and go home and claim that, you know, he beat up the Ukrainian armed forces enough that he feels good about it and he took enough territory. You know, again, he doesn't, so far, I don't know what he's going to do. Um, but so far, at least for public relations reasons, he's not even saying he's absorbing the Donbass into the Russian Federation. He's just, quote unquote, guaranteeing their independence with his armed peacekeepers, you know, on their territory, which is one way of looking at it, but, a, you know, somewhat cynical uh, way of looking at it. Um, and I think, you know, probably he will just end up absorbing the Donbass into the Russian Federation at some point. I don't know exactly you know, the public relations reason for calling it this instead of calling it that, but it's de facto absorbing them under Russian protection there, so-called protection. You know how it is with these states. Um, so that's what I think is is really shaken out here is the, the Russians will have, you know, what the Americans will call only a partial victory, but I think it is as much as they really were trying to take in the first place. And, you know, they continue to insist upon, they want a treaty of neutrality. They want to promise America's uh, not going to put weapons in and this kind of thing. And I should emphasize here, too, that Joe Biden himself has said, yeah, you know, the, the Ukrainians are probably going to have to recognize some territorial concessions here. In other words, just like you're talking about, recognize that the Russians control Crimea and Donbass. Ukraine isn't going to win this war and force them out and take back Crimea and the Donbass. Biden himself is saying, yeah, the, the Ukrainians are probably going to have to negotiate away Again, these territories have been under Russian control for seven years anyway. And Biden himself is going, yeah, they're probably going to have to recognize that fact. And and Zelensky has said the same thing at certain times. They just never say that on the same day. And, you know, Zelensky has talked about declaring neutrality and forswearing NATO, and he takes that back and goes back and forth. But if you listen to the American and Ukrainian side of this from time to time, they have stipulated that they're willing to sign on to exactly the demands that the Russians had in the first place. And that potentially could have avoided this entire thing. Yeah. I, I think that's actually very, very accurate because, you know, I thought, I, I think even in the faintest idea that, you know, Ukraine somehow takes back Donbass, they're just going to have, you know, we're just going to have a repeat of what has already happened. Um, but I think that where this gets kind of uh, interesting into what this means for the global American empire is that if they recognize those concessions, it's really a defeat 
and sound defeat of the idea that we are a unipolar system and well the um, whole war does that doesn't it i mean here they picked the war that they couldn't stop mm -hmm. biden said from the very beginning there's no way we're putting american troops on the ground in that country to defend that country he goes nato is sacred ukraine ain't in nato again why wouldn't he just put that in writing then and they're not going to be either right um but he's made it clear we're not going to go to war there and because there are limits to american power and those limits are h-bombs i mean that's the whole reason that nobody can be a true world hegemon is because you know even britain and france if we pushed our luck too hard bossing them around they would remind us that they have h-bombs too and that means that they can guarantee their own independence same for india same for pakistan same for north korea same for china and russia same for the united states you can push us and push us and push us to a certain point but if you make us mad enough we'll kill every last one of you that's yeah. the threat and it's a credible one and for people who aren't sure how these machines work look into it just one h-bomb will kill your whole city yeah, I, I think you're exactly correct there and that, you know, we're really seeing the extent of, of what America can do um, being pushed to that brink and not being able to do that. And um, so I want to jump into China a bit um, briefly because I do also want to get to another topic um, before we have to end. Um, but with China, I think that there is a lot of hype, specifically on the right, of uh, China's going to be the next big threat. China's going to be our, you know, main adversary. And, you know, the evidence there is, as you mentioned, is very weak that that's even the case. But I did want to ask you about whether or not you thought China is going to try to step up more um, and try to do what the United States has done in, uh, in its absence, specifically in the Middle East, is a place that a lot of people have been talking about potentially. Oh, I think I lost your audio for. Oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah. I turned my mic off for a second there. Um, I, I forgot who it was who told me this. It might have been Peter Van Buren. Uh, or it might have been Lyle Goldstein, I think. It was Lyle Goldstein told me that. You know, when Donald Trump was saying, why are we even in the Middle East? You know, we got to provide security to protect all these oil resources, but where's the oil going? The oil is going to China, China. So here we are paying to secure China's energy resources on the high seas. Well, why don't they just effing do it? Now, to the rest of the American establishment, this is, you know, total sacrilege. Because even if we are, you know, delivering these fuel supplies to their supposed adversaries, we're locking down the monopoly on providing security on the high seas at all times anyway and not opening that approach for anyone else to challenge us there. To Donald Trump, he's like, sounds like pissing money away to me, right? So when this discussion was happening, the Chinese had to talk about this in their media. They kind of had a whole big thing. And they said, maybe Trump is right. Maybe it's time for the Chinese to, you know, for us to invest in securing our own Middle Eastern oil resources here instead of relying on the Americans who are becoming more and more our adversaries all the time. And they had a big public debate about it, and they decided, no, let Uncle Sucker keep picking up the tab. We don't even want to do it. So as long as the Americans are going to keep doing it, let them keep doing it. So, you know, if, and look, it's not like they're about to quit, right? The U.S. Navy's not sailing home. 
until I can go back in time and make sure Ron Paul wins in 08, right? Like we're stuck with something like this empire slowly receding if we're lucky. Um, but in other words, it doesn't look like the Chinese are racing to try to challenge America's dominance on the high seas and think what it would take for them to really do so. You know what I mean? It just makes no sense when America has 22 carrier battle groups, dude. You really want to mess with that? You go, you, you'll go bankrupt trying. We've gone bankrupt trying, okay? So they, there's just no reason to think that they could do that. Uh, people talk about them, you know, making inroads in Africa and whatever. Well, look, I'm a libertarian, man. The more oil gets to the global market, the lower the price. I don't give a damn. You know what I mean? People say, oh, no, the Chinese want to build this Belt and Road Initiative. Well, first of all, this whole thing is completely preposterous. You know, they're proposing a highway and railroad and fiber optic and electrical and everything else system to, tr to go from Shanghai to Lisbon, right? Now, that, first of all, is impossible and ain't going to happen in 500 years. If it does, that'd be a miracle. Um, you think about all the countries they've got to cross and all the security situations that they've got to resolve and the absolute trillions they'd have to invest to get that project done. But somehow if I dream a genie, you know, oh, that was Bewitched. Was the, if, if Bewitched could um, make this thing happen, then that'd be the greatest invention in the history of humanity, right? Like, okay, yes, I guess the PLA could just march down it, but probably not, right? They would have so much to lose. And after all, a highway and a railroad and a fiber optic line, these things are all very easy to sever. That's why I was saying it was impossible going to be able to create this thing in the first place. How is the security situation in all of Eurasia supposed to accommodate for this kind of a plan on an indefinite basis? It's just crazy to think. But even if they could, now all you're talking about is the overall wealth of humanity increasing by trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. I'm talking about increased trade between all of Eurasia, between Portugal and China, and everything in between, talk about the Silk Road, right? Like this is, so, you know, if you see the world as a zero sum game uh, where the plan is divided by these warring powers, these, you know, major nation states who are just trying to hoard all the wealth for themselves like some stupid board game or whatever, well, that's one thing, but that's not how real wealth works. In fact, you'll hear people criticize the Afghans. I guess this is really true, right? That like, you'll have um, a beef where like you have two uh, farmers with flocks of sheep and they absolutely hate each other and they kill each other's sheep all day and they're constantly fighting and all of this stuff and they're essentially fighting over scraps they're fighting over pennies over you know wool and then someone tells them listen guys you've got gold right beneath your farms if you would both just leave each other alone you would have you know instead of all of $50 worth of sheep or $500 worth of sheep, you would have half of a billion dollars worth of gold, right? Something like that, right? And 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 then they choose, no, we'd rather fight. You know, we hate each other. We don't want the minerals. We would rather kill each other over our stupid goats and sheep and whatever, right? Um, you know, those are the kinds of decisions men make, right? It's like this kind of thing, just to disrupt. That'll, that'll it'll never make, you know, this kind of thing will never work anyway, because people would rather fight than, than make something like this work. But then if it does work, then what are we talking about, right? We're talking about, you know, uh, having, you know, we, we have to stop fighting 
but we get a huger share of a much huger pile of wealth, right? That's been spread all throughout all of humanity, you know? Um, you know, just look at what's happened in China. People just demonize China all day long like it ain't nothing but a red flag and a shape on a map or something like that. You're talking about a billion human beings. You know, in the just before I was born was when Mao died, right? In the mid 70s, you know, kind of early to, I guess he died in 74, right? Um, up until that time, the communists in their attempt to figure out how to make an economy work there in China and to, you know, purge their government of people who were learning the lessons about how this isn't working. Um, all of that had led to the death of something like her. Um, it was just the worst thing in, since World War II that had ever happened. In fact, that great quote that I, I steal all the time from Martin Luther King, that the United States of America, our government, is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. That actually is not true when he said it. When he said it in 1968, Mao Zedong was far ahead of Johnson and Nixon and their violence in Vietnam by orders of magnitude, mostly by starving people to death, but yeah, with violence enforced economic policies and everything, you know what I mean? It's not different than carpet bombing, just a higher number of casualties. Um, and then what happened? Mao died and they let Deng Xiaoping come home from the prison camp and Deng and the right wing of the communist party took over and installed capitalism in power and property rights. And it took like the whole decade of the 80s to even kind of take root and even get the engine humming and going at all. And then in the time from 1990 to 2000, and then from 2000 to, to 2010, and from 2010 to 2020, you have the greatest increases in the standard of living for the most people in the shortest amount of time that you could have ever imagined. Like you just wouldn't be able to believe it. You know, I know a guy who was an international businessman during that time and said, you know, Shanghai was this tiny little village, right? It was a one horse town. It was like Elgin outside of Austin or something, this little bitty thing. And then in the space of 10 years, it was the size of downtown Dallas, you know, it was, or, or bigger, it was, you know, metropolitan Dallas, which includes, you know, eight little towns, Plano and Irving and Bedford and whatever, all the way to Fort Worth there, Arlington and whatever. Um, um, Arlington's near Houston, isn't it? Anyway, you know what I mean. Yeah. They, they just turned Shanghai just went from nothing to something in a way. The standard of living of people who were literally starving, who literally were resorting to cannibalism, people raiding each other's villages and stealing and eating each other's children to try to stay alive under Marxist communism in China. And ever since the right wing of the Communist Party took over there and installed capitalism there, you've had literally billions of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who have been allowed and, and able to eat and feed their kin and take care of their families and have decent lives. It's the greatest invention in the world. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. When you take, you know, as, as Walter Block says, anybody ever asks you anything, the economist's answer, always the first rejoinder is compared to what, right? So yeah, they have a dictatorship. And we have reason to be worried about how they throw their weight around. Now that they're what? Now that they're wealthy because they abandon Marxism and save the lives of billions of people who otherwise would have starved uh, under their previous Marxist system. So you know what? You take your graces where you got them. 
and and you know people should people only look at the negative side of that oh no now china can afford to build more battleships yeah well so maybe we need to to negotiate with them better then right maybe we need to fire anthony blinken and hire a foreign minister who knows how to do his damn job and then we won't have to worry about china's battleships so much you know maybe let's start with that you know get a little bit of competent leadership on this side and recognize not 100% of the Pacific Ocean can belong to America forever. We might have to settle for 95%. You know, we might have to concede that China has a sphere of influence too. Just the same, again, Robert Kagan, sorry, I've been interviewed a few times today. I forget if it's this is again or not. Robert Kagan's uh, uh, wife, Victoria Nuland, is the one doing this, did the coup in Ukraine in 2014, is in charge of Biden's Ukraine policy now. Well, uh, Robert Kagan himself wrote in the um, Washington Post back at the end of February that, geez, looks like the unipolar moment is over. Russia will be the dominant power in Eastern Europe, and China will be the dominant power in the far Western Pacific. And then he said, and Americans have a choice and our allies of whether we can tolerate this or not. Yeah, well, I think he just said, he just admitted that this is just the way of things. Russia, and especially because of the way our government has provoked them into their reaction, Russia now is taking a position of dominance in Eastern Europe that there's not much, you know, rolling back from. Uh, and same thing with China here. Everybody knows it's official history. You can find it anywhere. That China's major revolutions in military affairs came in reaction to America's Iraq War I when they saw our laser-guided and satellite-guided bombs there. Um, and when Bill Clinton sailed the Seventh Fleet between China and Taiwan when they were doing a show of force, but they weren't really threatening to invade. They had no ability to invade. They're doing a show of force in 97, and Clinton went and sailed the Seventh Fleet through there to intimidate them, and they embarked on another new revolution in military affairs. And then, I forget, I guess it was Obama under Hillary Clinton, they did the pivot to Asia, and they decided, nope, we better start building up our Navy even further. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Look, I'm an American, I'm from here, I'm a Texan, even better. But the reality is that when China builds up their military forces, their naval forces, it has been in direct reaction to American aggression around the world this whole time. Um, and it's the same thing just like with the Russians in Ukraine. This is not happening in a vacuum. It doesn't excuse any behavior that they engage in, but it does mean that we're the ones who restarted the Cold War with both of them. And that's the true context in which their actions are taking place. Yeah, I think that's all very accurate and, and very much characterizes what is going on currently in the world and, and specifically when it comes to in relation to China. And I think it is very true that there's a lot of fear mongering about what China does. But you bri briefly did mention, um, you know, how China's far from perfect and it has plenty of policies uh, in which domestically it, it, it oppresses their cit citizens. But that actually makes me want to talk about what the global American empire and our foreign policy has domestically. Um, we probably don't have a lot of time to cover it, but I, I wanted to cover it a little bit if, if you wanted to yeah sure one more one more and i really yeah. gotta run here man and then so basically it's been a long day. yeah <laughs> uh i just wanted to ask you about what what you think the most potent in effect domestically we've had be from the global american empire and do you think that you know it's going to contort um the current reaction is going to contort that domestic policy even further into a repression of united states civilians yeah, well, I mean, um, yes, uh, the reality is that all of the worst things about our government at home 
are dependent on our foreign policy, have come from our foreign policy. You know, William F. Buckley, the founder of the National Review, wrote in the Commonweal back in 64 when he was kind of facing down the old right. He said that, listen, in, in the name of the emergency of Soviet communism, we must accept a totalitarian bureaucracy on our shores for the duration of the emergency, even with Truman at the reins of it all. Uh, he wrote that in I, what, 50, uh, 51, maybe 52, something in Commonweal Magazine. You can find that. Even with Truman at the reins of it all, we must accept this because of the emergency. And that's where, you know, 99% of our federal government has grown up in the post-World War II era, the massive welfare state and regulatory state, most importantly, the corporate state, the military industrial complex, and you know the, the intertwining of all of the powers of Wall Street with the federal government. And then of course, it's all the police state that has come for us. You know, the federal government's only laws, again, you know, that would apply to regular people like us would be if we sell secrets to a foreign government or if we counterfeit money or just a couple of things that would fall under federal jurisdiction. Every other thing should be a matter for the states to work out. The Fed shouldn't even know our names. Um, they should have nothing to do with us in these 50 states. And we have this just entire, you know, it's the United States of America. After all, that's how we refer to it. The United States, we refer to it as a singular entity uh, because it is one. Um, these states are not states. They're provinces like in Canada or oblasts like in Ukraine. They are subordinate to the central government. It's nothing like a real federal union, which, you know, the Constitution describes power kind of flowing both ways and back again. And it's a bit contradictory there, but it's supposed to be. Um, and we just have nothing like that limited constitutional republic described in our constitution because of the warfare state since the end of world war ii and there's no way we could ever be a normal country in a normal time if we don't just knock it off and now besides all of the laws that violate all of our rights in so many ways um which you couldn't begin to name in the time we have here but the most important effect of course is economically because we have as you've experienced your whole life and as your audience has experienced their whole lives. We have this terrible boom bust cycle, the so-called business cycle, where every 10 or 12 years, the bottom completely falls out from the economy and the very richest people all get their bailouts and asset price inflation uh, from the government printing money. But everybody on like, not just the bottom half, but even like the bottom three quarters or more of the economic ladder, as they call it in America, the population here, everybody has to take a giant kick to the gut and you know or get the rug pulled right out from under them and have to start over again you have each time this happens hundreds of thousands of businesses go under and that means divorces and suicides and foster care and you know entire the fabric of entire towns destroyed every 10 years or 12 years when the economy booms and busts and look at where we are now. They created so much money to make the war seem free. And of course, to offset the cost of the totalitarian lockdowns of 2020 by printing all of this money. They've created another massive bubble. You know, people are complaining about, uh, complaining about inflation. Now, if you own a bunch of assets, you own a bunch of hard assets, inflation is okay by you because now all the land that you own is going up in value. The precious metals you own are going up in value. You know, maybe you can keep up with inflation, right? But for wage earning people, when people are just trying to pay their rent, pay their mortgage, pay their property tax, this is a huge extra tax 
and burden on us. Well, I got bad news. This is the good times. The inflation like this is when we're in a giant bubble. This is the artificial prosperity created by the Monday printing before the real crash comes and kicks everybody's ass because it's like a sine wave. If the economy is here and they print up a bubble like this, it's gonna crash down to this, you see? So you got 300 million Americans are all about to get their left arm lopped off and have to start all over again. Just like happened in 2008, just like happened in 1999, it's coming. This, the pain people are suffering now trying to pay these rising prices, this is the good times before the real pain comes when they crash the economy in order to try to cool off all the inflation that they've caused with all the inflation that they've caused. And so that is their, their monetary expansion leading to price inflation. And so, you know, this is the worst cause of it. Uh, the, the worst cause of all of our monetary system is the need to backstop the empire by printing money. You know, if George Bush wanted to go to Afghanistan in 2001 on the lie that the Taliban would not negotiate, which was a lie, the American people would have supported that. They'll believe a lie and support that. But now you want to have a bonus, extra war in Iraq? Oh, and then Somalia and Pakistan and Libya and Syria and Iraq again and Yemen? Well, that sounds expensive. And yet, what did George Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump do? They kept cutting taxes, cutting them and cutting them and cutting them. If they had had to raise our taxes to pay for those bonus wars, the American people would have never stood for it. In fact, you might remember, Bush sent everyone three and $400 checks from the IRS as this extra bonus, which was just money printed out of nothing, to deceive people into believing this was like their dividend. This was all of our share of the profit from invading Iraq, when in fact, what was Iraq War II but $10 trillion destroyed? But they made it seem like, oh, see, war is good for the economy. We're all getting a little something out of it. But that was just a lie. That was just an illusion. And all it did was help to pump up the asset bubble that ended in the crash of 08. Remember, one of the major reasons W. Bush wanted to do the war in Iraq was so he could be in the middle of a war, so he could be guaranteed to be reelected in 04, so that he could, as they put it, privatize Social Security. Now, did that mean give everybody who invests in Social Security a private savings account for their retirement with their name on it and the money they paid in? Hell no, don't be stupid. What it meant was they were gonna take all the government IOUs and they were gonna put them in the stock market bubble. The very same stock market bubble that crashed in 08 before he was even gone. September 08, he's still in the chair and the whole thing came crumbling down. He wanted to take all your grandma's social security money and put it in the bubble first. So all his friends could run off with it before the bubble crashed, you know? That is the cost and consequence for the American people. People say war is good for the economy only if you hold stock in Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, Raytheon, or you're some scumbag neoconservative think tank study writer. All of the rest of us suffer. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, and I, I think it's had devastating consequences on everyone, and I think it'll continue to do so. So I want to quickly give you uh, the floor to promote anything you want to promote to my audience, uh, where they can check you out, where they can see things that you are uh, doing. 
Sure. All right. Well, first of all, I'm giving speeches in Montana on Tuesday and Wednesday next week. Um, look up Liam McCollum on uh, Twitter. He's got, or just look at my Twitter actually has a, a thing about it there. Uh, at Scott Horton show has the information about that. If uh, anybody's in Montana listener or nearby Montana. Um, otherwise I got 5,600 and something shows for you going back 19 years at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com where everybody else does all the work, but I direct you there to uh, point your eyeballs at all their great uh, articles. And um, I do write sometimes and my you can find my show there. And then I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute. We're really great on foreign policy, but we also cover other stuff too. So everybody check out libertarianinstitute.org. And then the books are Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, which is all the wars from Jimmy Carter through Donald Trump. All right, yeah, and I'll make sure to include all those things in the descriptions of all these videos. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on, Scott. And Absolutely, uh, thanks for having me. You have a wonderful day now. Appreciate it, you too.